0: Good afternoon. This is Gary Kavanaugh. I'm here today on TRSI with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. We very nearly had a streak of um, three of these going up in a row, but that was ruined by Michael and his lack of commitment, uh, which is frankly uh, deeply damaging to the success of this podcast. Michael, how are you?
1: Lies. He tells you lies. And because he edits this, I have no capacity to know whether or not any of my truth will ever get out. I'm fine, Gary.
0: How are you? You know, my edits of you up to this point have been pretty like cut and paste, where someone who knew what they are listening for could uh could tell i was cutting you apart and putting you back together but i've been practicing with some ai techniques and i'm pretty sure i can make you say anything i want now
1: gary i'm sure that was nest- that was probably true before
0: ai in good news for the uh, exchequer actually just to start with i saw a um an article on the journal michael and it was about an illegal cigarette factory that was shut down huh? um by revenue but there was a great figure they gave out they said that the um there was over uh, 750,000 cigarettes and had a retail value of over 630,000, which meant there had been a potential loss to the exchequer of almost 500,000 euro. Wow, that's... It's a wonderful imp- reminder yeah. of how much tax is on cigarettes.
1: That is impressive, in fairness. You put the numbers like that beside each other, that is a very, very impressive. It's also a reminder of why we have... Well, some would say one of the reasons for when the uh, tax take went up so much that the, the, and the price of increased c- cigarettes increased that you invent you you hit the point kind of an inverted Laffer curve, where the disincentive to smoke caused by the high prices had become so great that it created a black market, and because the prices in the black market were so substantially smaller, it had actually start induced people to start smoking again because the number of people smoke uh, in the black market has started to increase. so More and more likely it was that a smoker would know someone smoking who was smoking cigarettes but that were contraband. Apparently, now I don't want to besmirch the good name of people going to car boot sales around the country, but for example, apparently in car boot sales and in certain public houses around the country, these cigarettes became widely available. And for the first time in 20 odd years, a couple of years ago, we saw an uptick in uh tobacco consumption in the country it's just one of those things gary that legislators and policymakers should be aware of that you what is very simple just push 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 doesn't always work
0: sometimes policies may have secondary or even tertiary consequences sometimes it happens which would be a a good thing to remember if this referendum passes oh
1: yeah (laughs) and this referendum
0: will pass it's, all polling indicates that, that it, it will pass. But on the on the cigarettes, Michael, think of the business opportunity that's there if you're willing to do that legally. I mean, with that percentage of your competitors' costs being made up of tax, yeah. you could reduce your cost to a fraction of what theirs are and still make two or three times the profit. Oh, it's
1: a, it's a fantastic opportunity. I remember, obviously, is a much bigger country, much bigger population, and at the time, probably had a slightly higher percentage, not much higher, but a higher percentage of smokers. And I remember reading an art, uh, a story in the late 90s about Italy that the contraband tobacco business was was worth more than the heroin business in Italy. And, I, and the duties there are far, far lower. So I think if you any entrepreneurial criminals out there, I mean, the, 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 the potential for profits, I mean, particularly when you have popular well-known international brands available in other countries at a very 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 low prices so you don't even have to make the stuff you know you can bring them in and still make really savage profits this is not advice this is commentary
0: it's not advice but i'm pretty sure if you sat down with a notepad and worked through the economics of this and the cost of setting up a factory to make this uh you you would come out so in the black that yeah. Again, not advice, but you could make so much money.
1: Yeah, but you'd be making money illegally, and you so you wouldn't
0: sleep at night. And you can make 250000 an hour. Well, really, it would seem your only problem is um, going to be getting in enough actual tobacco and distribution.
1: Yeah. Your, your marketing and distribution element are going to be challenging.
0: I find that's where many illegal enterprises fall down.
1: Yeah. Also, human resources. They don't invest enough in human resources, so they... You lose out of the customer experience element
0: sometimes. Well, actually, I mean, the criminal enterprises that have handled distribution appropriately and internal HR matters appropriately tend to keep going for substantial amounts of time without most of the common issues that plague these sorts of things. For instance, large seizures of things like drugs or, in this case, cigarettes generally come because someone told people where that factory was. Yeah. And, you know, if you maintain uh, appropriate HR policies inside your organisation, you reduce the risk of anyone snitching to the police.
1: Absolutely. Snitching is fundamentally a manifestation of a HR failure.
0: I mean, it really is. Um, and that's actually what we don't get enough of, Michael. Business consultants in the criminal space. It's an untapped market for the big four.
1: I am sure there's a book in that. And I'm sure that if it was a book published by somebody from, say, the New York mob and sort of a reworking a sort of Machiavelli for the modern man kind of thing. Mobsters but guide to business. I'm sure I think it would, it would sell.
0: If we want to talk about um, uncomfortable truths that occasionally like, you, you can't say and people will commonly say the opposite of, even though they're probably false. It's the idea that smoking hurts the health service.
1: <laughs> yeah. if you
0: look at the level of tax on these things mm. the tax alone will pay for most of the healthcare what might be truth is that light smokers could be uh, could be damaging to the health service but your regular smoker they actually I would say are a net positive to the health service and probably substantially so because they die earlier which means that they, um, they don't have all that really expensive old people move from you know, needing care occasionally to kind of a constant care level, and that's incredibly expensive. So smokers are helping this country twofold what? by giving money to the health service yeah. and by dying.
1: Obviously, I I don't want to play down the importance and the value that smokers have, but the real heroes, Gary, are the smokers and drinkers. You know, the the heavy smoker, heavy drinker, he is the real hero. And if he then throw in perhaps a diet based on chipper. He is just such a strong net contributor in comparison. You know, those greedy people, you know, those people who live on sort of mostly on plants and olive oil and drink water and they jog five miles every day. Those greedy that suck and suck and take and take and live till they're 110. You know, I don't know how they live. That's sounds scary. But the guy who drinks, he smokes. He has a chicken box for his dinner. He's a hero. And there was a time, Gary, when I was that man. So, you know, I I feel a little bit embarrassed, you know, self-praise is no praise and all that. But, you know, I feel like I've given. I've given a lot. Yeah, but
0: then, I mean, Michael, you know, when you got to the end and you had the choice to give everything, you turned around. (laughs) You turned your back on it.
1: true. It's horrible. And you
0: became a chronic drain on the health service. I
1: know. It's true. And there I am walking five miles every day and drinking water and eating vegetables. I know. I know. I, I, I failed. I failed at the last fence. Just your
0: your conviction fled, and you chose life.
1: Much much like that Scottish film, I chose life.
0: Have you ever heard of Snipers Alley?
1: Yes, I have, and I don't want to talk about it because I'm in Snipers Alley, and I'm looking for a way to get out of it.
0: Snipers Alley it refers to a period in a man's life, usually put as between like fifty and sixty, but sometimes like forty-five to fifty-five, where those people who shall we say um, drive down life expectancies die. So people with a lot of health issues or who have really, really not taken care of your health. If you're a man, that's where you're most likely to die. And if you get outside of that, well, then, you know, you can live a full and meaningful life. But, um, you know, if you don't, you've provided a lot of tax already.
1: Yeah, you say a full and meaningful life. What you actually mean is a long life. The fullness of the meaningfulness of the life is a completely separate issue. Anyway, shall we... At this stage, having been talking for 10 minutes and not talked about anything in the news, uh, let's talk something about the news.
0: The the problem here is that the news is terrible. The news is terrible. Because we took took a week off and then we came back and John and Sarah had talked about most of what I wanted to talk about and I don't want to become a fucking tribute band. This
1: is true because there was lots of good news last week. There was lots of Leo-related news and there was people having tantrums and there was... There was Catherine Martin and all of them telling fibs and there was uh, people getting community noted and it it was all good stuff. It was good, solid stuff. This week we have a, okay, we have an opinion poll. Let's get excited about the opinion poll because the opinion poll, let's pretend that I kind of said this. The
0: the opinion poll was, it it was one of my favorite types of opinion polls. Red Sea asked people about politics and about the referendum. By their polling, uh, it looks like the referendum is going to pass. That's not unexpected. I have really enjoyed all of the profiles in uh, the Irish Times has been doing them, where they're like, who are the yes and no campaigns? And um, the no campaign has generally just been the Iona Institute, who, as far as I know, are not actually actively campaigning no, on this they're at not. all. They're not. Uh, which is to say, <laughs> they're putting in the Iona Institute because there's no no campaign But it would be embarrassing in a functioning democracy to say that there's only one side campaigning um particularly given how poorly the campaign has been going
1: oh so bad
0: it's it's rather but they did that thing where they asked people they said over half of people said the referendum on non-marital families enhances the definition of a family and does not weaken traditional marriage and i love when the public (laughs) is polled on these sort of things what do you think the legal consequences of your vote will be given that No one has really any idea at all. And then the public will give, and it sounds like the public have very strong opinions on this, whereas I don't think anyone has any idea what's on this. But we do have a wonderful situation where the Yes campaign is just do this for families, and the No campaign is, to the extent it exists, here is an eight-page long booklet by a former Attorney General saying that there are legal issues with this.
1: The the thing about the polling that's a great one is, the fact, they're being asked a question, which is essentially a point of constitutional law. There are around, I don't know, two and a half people in this country who actually make their living out of constitutional law. It is the most philosophical part of the law. You could talk to a dozen lawyers, solicitors around the country, who will blankly tell you, no, no, don't ask me anything about the constitution. I just know it's there. I have no opinions about that at all. But Joe Soap out there is being asked questions in a poll. And and because, of course... They give an answer, we have no sense at all, because you can't, about how confident they are and and to what extent they feel like they're just blowing it out their arse. But it's such a, Gary, is it not just such a rankly stupid thing to do in a poll? I mean, why? Um, Unless you're looking, I don't, unless you're looking to get a certain kind of answer that you can put, put on a page somewhere. Also, what difference does it make? Well,
0: there was one interesting one. They asked if people agreed with this that the existing language does not exclude women and mothers from other roles and serves to pay tribute to the work done by mothers in the home. Now, that was the one I was interested in seeing the answer to, for this simple reason, that the Supreme Court judge and chairman of the Electoral Commission, Marie Baker, has said that that is what the Constitutional says and that's the understanding of of it in Irish case law, Mm -hmm. which is to say we know that that is a settled constitutional matter. Yes. So you're like, okay, well if people actually have a view of constitutional law, they will know the answer to this. Uh, uh, a quarter of those agreed, polled, agreed with it.
1: Okay. Well, you see, it may be the case that Chief Justice Susan Denham and the current Supreme Court Justice, who is in, par- in, in charge of the elector- of the, overseeing the, the referendum, um, have an opinion. But their opinion is wrong, Gary, because the actual Supreme Court, Supreme, the constitutional law position is, okay, that's what they say. But what people believe is something different. And if I keep saying what people believe, and people are, and people believe what they believe, because I keep saying this, even though it's wrong, then it's right. Which is, as I understand it, the logic used by Catherine Martin.
0: That is exactly the logic used by Catherine Martin. On a side uh, issue here, Michael, I've been trying to get the Electoral Commission to comment on a whole host of things. Yeah. They are not... Uh... They're not getting involved in this referendum beyond what they, I mean, the very bare minimum. She's like, can you comment on this or on Roderick O'Gorman saying that um, the McKenna principles mean that he can't release any of the internal analysis of what this will do legally? And they're like, that's an FOI question. It was, like, it was a ministerial response to a PQ that touches upon, yes, FOI, but also on the Quite a lot more than that, because it's a blanket statement that, um, you, no departmental analysis from anyone can be released for any reason. You don't need an FOI to release that sort of material.
1: Yeah, so what you're, su- I, I don't know if surprised is the word, but I, I would say you're, sur- you're surprised that you're bringing them to a dumpster fire and saying to them, would you like to jump into this dumpster fire? And they're going, Gary, uh, that's a FOI question. We'd rather not jump into this particular dumpster fire. I did enjoy the, the fact that on one of the FOI requests, They came back with and said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have that for you in four weeks."
0: Yeah, that was the Department of Justice um, to a PQ I had been put in. I had put in because I we figured Equality was going to say no because Equality is very much a Gorman's creature. Um, So we went, but we knew there was an interior departmental committee. So other people were getting that material. So we went to the other departments because other departments, Michael, like the barrier for equality saying that this uh, judgment stops us from releasing things. And the barrier for justice saying that it's just very different. They're very different departments. People in justice might have an issue with you saying that if that wasn't, you know, totally backed up. Right. But uh, yeah, they came back and said, uh, Oh yeah, we're going to need to take an extra four weeks. Despite the fact that I had already agreed to let them tighten the material uh, requested just so that it wouldn't take any extra time, uh, so that we won't have it until, I think, what, two weeks after the referendum date.
1: I I do wonder, and if there's anybody out there that uh, knows the answer to this because of their professional background or just because they'd asked somebody who knew, what would have to happen as regards breaches of, say, McKenna judgment stuff for this for a referendum, I wonder to be invalidated.
0: I... Well, so I, I, that's actually something I've been asking a couple of legal professionals about. like fairly high level. I've I've heard conflicting things. Some have said that with the way the Supreme Court is now, mm-hmm. uh, where you to come forward with the something based on the McKenna judgment, there's a chance the court would actually invalidate the um, the McKenna judgment entirely. Because it was it was thought of as sloppy law, right. and other people I've talked to have said no. They actually think that the Supreme Court would give this some play, and the issue then becomes: does someone bring a challenge against it? Now, I mean, if someone were to bring a challenge and were to win and have a referendum thrown out on this basis, it would be unbelievably embarrassing for the government.
1: It would be tremendous. I did note
0: that I did note that just after we reported that uh, the NWCI was taking ninety six percent of their staff uh, costs from the government. And that this, you know, certainly against the spirit of the McKenna judgment, uh, the Nwci seemed to fade a bit into the background, and also started collecting donations specifically for their campaign.
1: Oh, really? How fun. Now, I would my suspicion, and that's all it can be, is a suspicion of an amateur on the on her, on the ditch. The courts in Ireland would are would be very very loath. I mean, and courts generally speaking, the developed world are very loath to overturn. The democratic decisions expressed at the ballot box of the people—that's something that you really don't. I mean, it'd have to be something really egregious, I think, for them to get to go that far, because. It's it, and there is something slightly worrying and slightly icky about the idea of a court coming in and saying no, we're 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 stopping this, we're turning this back. And, be, and then it, I mean, you could argue, well, it's not really all they're saying is let's just do it again. I think
0: I think I would agree with you that there is there's a real issue with a court doing that. But I think we have a situation where a government minister has been said by the chair of the Electoral Commission, which has many duties, but one of them is to oversee misinformation. Now, their actual powers to regulate misinformation have not been activated by the government yet, but it is their job to deal with misinformation. They have said a government minister is spreading false information about a referendum, and the government has decided entirely to ignore that and basically deal with it uh, through just sheer ignorance. And it hasn't really been picked up by most people other than Gript. I mean, I think it was the Sunday Mail who carried the initial interview with uh, Justice Baker on it. Uh, But other than the two of us, there's not a lot. And now we have a situation where government departments are pushing back FOIs to not have to give out information before the referendum, where Quality is outright saying they won't give out information uh, until after the referendum. And we have Roderick O'Gorman saying that this has to be done because of the McKenna and McChrystal judgments. Now, I reached out to the, um, to the Office of the Information Commissioner about that and asked them, you know, is it uh, appropriate to refuse to give out an FOI or information of a general sort using these judgments? And what they said was that the FOI Act has exemptions built into it a court judgment does not of itself provide a basis for the refusal of a request although such a judgment may serve to support an argument for refusal based on one or more of the exemptions of the act Mm -hmm. now that reads to me like a blanket refusal based on this unless you can tie it back to the foi act is not supported legally but that doesn't matter because it will take so much time to go through this and go through the appeals and um, that sort of thing that you'll never get back in time. So, for instance, when I was talking uh, to a couple of people about this and they were asking about, well, are you going to appeal certain things? And the problem with the appeal process is that you first have to go through an internal appeal. And that can take, I believe, four weeks. So if they're slow-walking you, they'll slow-walk you through the eternal uh, appeal. Yeah. And then by the time it's all moved anyway, by the time it gets true. Now, I was able to appeal the... (coughs) Uh, request for an extension from the Department of Justice. Because they didn't refuse me, they asked for more time. And you can appeal directly against such uh, uh, a request. They also did not actually meet their statutory duty when they sent on the request to me. They have to tell you why they're seeking an extension. They didn't tell me that, they just said we are. So maybe we'll get something back from that. I, I had to call the OIC and Basically, say, look, this is very time sensitive. So, if we can do this quickly, that would be muchly appreciated. You know, it's, and we'll see what we get back from them. So, it it
1: strikes me in, in in a lot of the conversation we've been having for the last few weeks about this. I the, I think there is a decent chance. No, I won't. I'll I think there's a chance that if these referendums pass, that they will not have any perhaps substantial uh, consequences in many areas. There's also a chance, maybe a decent chance, that they will actually have consequences like, say, for immigration or maybe for taxation or maybe for inheritance or all sorts of things. Now, I would say, from my perspective, if you're going to pass something, a referendum, and to put something in the Constitution, it shouldn't be done on the basis of a decent chance. There should be a, certain, a fairly high degree of clarity and certainty about what you're doing and therefore... When you've had this kind of degree of fuzziness, blah blah. blah. But I think what this uh, campaign or this pre and the pre campaign has brought up quite sharply is something which I know we have been talking about probably to the ad nauseum to the boredom of, of a lot of people out there. Which is, to first of all, the, the role of the NGOs. But in specifically in the case of of say an election or of a constitutional referendum, we need we need more clarification. We need real clarity and hard lines about uh, what the McKenna judgment means and maybe and we need a new McKenna judgment because Gary right now we have ministers who are doing their thing as ministers and representatives of their political party. At this stage we've had three or four ministers who have been community noted or corrected in public by uh, senior officials on a certain line that they've decided to take in the campaign. The NCWI And then there's another group which was set up, which is also public funded, like, which is a kind of an umbrella group voting for yes. Can you you know what I mean?
0: Well, there's the yes yes campaign, um, but that's actually run by the Nwci.
1: Yeah. Anyway, there's a number of them again, all government funded. And I came across this, which is again from another NGO, another state funded NGO, and on their piece, their on their uh, uh, this uh, flyer, it said. Legal effects of no, legal effects of yes, and the legal effect of a no vote. The first point is the article 41.2 would continue to state that for the good of society, a woman's place is in the home. Now, this has been, well, it's not what the constitution says, it's nowhere near what the constitution says, it's not what the legal position is, blah, blah, blah. But this is the line, and we need to, there needs to be a mechanism where you don't have to take weeks and weeks. After the referendum has happened, to to be able to stop, and when when this is being government funded, there has to be some kind of mechanism where this, where the government cannot effectively slip money around the corner into people's pockets in order for the government to campaign, and to campaign on the basis of misinformation and disinformation, and be able to get away with it. There's a there's a real problem here, and also it tightens it, it heightens it, it brings into stark clarity, the nonsense of the idea that we're going to turn to the state to control the problem of information, disinformation and misinformation, when right now the single biggest preferent on this subject of misinformation or
0: disinformation is the state. It has actually been a quite interesting example of the concept of a democratic norm. You know, the government should not lie. The government should not attempt to mislead people. The government, if inadvertently it misleads people, should stop misleading people. Yeah. And the utterances of a Supreme Court justice should be considered to be important when they are talking in their capacity as, you know, the chair of the electoral commission. And respectable media like let's say the Irish Times, Michael, should cover that and give it the due prominence it deserves. Yes. Those are the kind of norms we have. And in this instance none of them have been followed. So it's quite an interesting little thing. Because it's always a question when people talk about norms about you know, how much of a norm there actually is. And I've, I think, vocally been of the opinion that a lot of Irish politics and a lot of Irish media like to say, you know, certain things, but when it comes down to it, actually aren't that concerned about norms beyond when it benefits them or reflects on a topic that they support. When it's, you know, when those norms are breached in a way that benefits them, I think you see what you're seeing now. No one gives a shit. No. And I mean, what are you going to do? Like, grip can repeat as many times as you want. The tabloids can repeat as many times as we want. It will not cross over into the mainstream press. And most people will never hear of it. So, you know, there you go. Uh, uh, most people, uh, kind of,
1: is it worrying? Is it shocking? Or is it just, is it utterly predictable? I was in the group of five, six shall we say, ordinary people, four or five nights ago. And we are here now uh, just a couple of weeks out from, a few weeks out from the referendum. And I just, fox pop, I said, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you know about the the, the, the referendums coming up? Every one of them
0: said zero. How can you know? I think the gov- the, the, we have government ministers when asked what this is going to do, saying that will be a matter for the courts. <laughs> yeah. Traditionally... The courts, when asked to review these matters, have looked at what politicians and the public thought had been happening, and considered that that's very important because that is the intent uh, behind the vote. Yeah. Whereas here, we've just skipped that step and gone straight for, oh, well, courts will decide. How will they decide? What will they decide? Yeah, you know, the courts are an adversarial system; they decide as people bring cases forward.
1: I don't, I, I don't cover too much over it, but we've talked before that there are certain kinds of situations where. Uh, democracy representative democracy has runs into a problem about with itself so i mean historically for example if you had polled certain countries like say the united kingdom for a very long period of time consistently a majority of people in the united kingdom would have would have been in favor of the, the return of the death penalty whereas every time it came into parliament it just lost and lost heavily and there's never really there's no prospect of it being reintroduced because of the the part that there is a consistent parliamentary majority of both sides of the house against it so it's it's not a runner that's one single issue and you might say it's not a very it may or may not be that personally it might be important to you but for most people it's not a, it's not a massively important but when you start to get a whole series of issues and they may be policy issues or cultural issues where people don't feel representative and the the response is all well if you don't like them vote for someone else but what happens when you get such a degree of political cultural agreement or such a level of disrespect for what you're talking for if you the political historic norms democratic norms that there is effectively no one else to vote for and i think that this referendum where there is effectively no no campaign where the government is consistently engaged in a a campaign which is somewhere between disingenuous and outright mendacious where they are supporting financially through the taxpayer the other groups that are campaigning for it and there are no funds available from the taxpayer to people who want to oppose it where and this is the last big part of the jigsaw yes can report on it you can get stuff online if that's where you are you can maybe get stuff in the tabloids but for the majority of people who who want when they make decisions like this they seek information from their the heritage media from the main from the newspapers and from rte and they're not getting shall we say the level of critical analysis there that you would expect gary there was one story i into details but there was one story which was at least for two days that I looked and maybe it made in and afterwards which was simply it was not badly reported by the Irish Times it wasn't reported by the Irish Times and it was a story which I it seemed to me it felt like it had to have been an editorial choice not to report it and when you when you're removing not that people are telling you lies but they're not just not telling you anything then you have a problem I mean a real problem because it's now not that people are making decisions based on bad information. They're not even aware that there is a problem in the first place because they don't know anything about it.
0: I think that is, is a point worth making. I, I mean, it was. It's, it's a point that's been made about GRIP multiple times, and most recently by The Village, that GRIP chooses to focus on certain issues. Now, I would argue that GRIP, tends to, as a small organization, tends to focus on issues which we think are being underserved by the mainstream media at the time or being just are not being uh, appropriately investigated. And that will change from, you know, in, during the COVID years, it was the government justifications for lockdowns. It was whether or not we really needed to be physically dragging pastors out of their buildings. Mm. Um, you know, whether or not that, that really needed to be happening. And immigration has become a topic we write a lot on because it's a topic which is of growing concern to people and is, I think, reported on in a very particular way in the Irish mainstream media. Um a very, very particular way. But RTE, the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, all make similar choices. Editorial choices are choices. They're not things that just happen. It's very rare that someone or a news organization misses something entirely because they all monitor their competition. Deliberate choices are made as to what to cover and what not to cover. And so when you don't see a story, it's probably because they've decided it's either not worth the resources or it's just not something they're interested in covering for whatever reason. For whatever reason, and no. I mean, it's like a lot of the time it is. You know, it, it can be resources. Like as I said, Grip tends to focus on areas we think are underserved because we don't have the staffing level to, on a general news, beat, compete with you know the Irish Times or TE or those people. So instead, you focus on an area and you go deeper into it than they're interested, and you ask the questions that they're not interested in, and you know, you expand the conversation that way. When you look at something like RTE the amount of resources they have are incredible. Yeah, massive. Ridiculous levels of resources for a news organization. They have the resources to do pretty much anything they want. Now, are they pissing a lot of it against the wall through mismanagement? Undoubtedly. But that really just reflects how much money they have to begin with.
1: Anyway, oh, um, I know the way you hate it when we do sort of retrospectives about, well, it looks like we may have been right about that all the time. Because... You Feel that it reflects on our fundamental humility and the uh, the the, the or just our, our approach to life.
0: Self praise is no praise, Michael, and I think that's something this show has adhered to.
1: You know, they say that self praise is no praise, but I, you know, when you're getting no praise, self praise is praise, anyway. Paul Kyo, Gary, Paul Kyo, long standing TD from uh, this parish, uh from the five, the old five-seater in Wexford, first elected whenever he was first elected. He first elected, uh, when was it uh, when Enda Kenny took over, uh, Ivan retired, was that 2007? Something like that. Anyway, Paul Kyo will not be seeking re-election to Dáil Aaron when the next election occurs. So now, Gary, that means, well, a couple of things. First of all, off the top of my head, and I may be wrong on this, that means uh, because of new constituencies, South Wicklow, Wexford, Carlo, Kilkenny, Leix, Offaly, Waterford and Tipperary will not have a sitting Fine Gael TD on the ballot sheet come the next general election. And I think that means we are down up to nine, are we up nine or ten, declared non-runners for
0: Fine If I recall correctly, somewhere between a year and two years ago, we said that we expected somewhere in the region of 10 to 12 Fine Ltds TDs not to run.
1: That is correct.
0: I like the way you went back several weeks to find the example of a uh, of a non-runner, just that you could uh, put it forward as we're being right.
1: Well, you know, I thought, you know, it's an example of, it's the kind of news that people want to know, because the people want to know were were right. we're right. And, you know, I felt that it was an exact, I give, just talked about somebody not reporting something that people therefore didn't know about. So it would be wrong of us not to report this because then the people wouldn't know about us. And the people need to know when we're right, Gary. They need to know.
0: Actually, if, if you're interested in knowing uh, people who think I'm wrong and relates to RTE, RTE think I'm, I'm very wrong about something. I, um, I tried to do a, 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 bit of a maneuver, Michael. Oh, yeah. Ortie have, um, a relationship with a group called Covering Climate Now. Yes. They're an organization that says how you should report on climate and they train journalists on it and they push you taking very particular, uh, lines on the coverage of climate and that it goes to the extent of saying, you know, you should never report anything negative about certain organizations or certain positions. You should never report something positive about other organizations or other positions and regulating, you know, who should go on to shows. Now, ORTIE is the only state broadcaster, I believe in the world, at least the last time I checked, who has signed up to this thing. And I've tried to FOI this before and ORTIE have always refused. Their stance has been that anything involving Covered Climate Now is exempt from um, the FOI regulations because it relates to editorial work. And RTE have a cutout from editorial work. And, I mean, they mean everything is editorial. Training sessions, the administrative side of things, all is classes editorial. Which, if it's true, Michael, indicates something about how much influence covering climate now has in RTE. Now, to be frank, I don't think they have that level of influence. I think RTE just doesn't want to give these records out. But there was a recent finding that RTE actually came under the AIE regulations now this is access to information on the environment so basically it's a kind of specialized FOI where you can request specific information related to um, environmental impact and, and basically environmental issues more generally and I thought well covering climate now environment all the editorial work on it must relate to environmental issues yes so why don't I put in an ao an AIE instead of an FOI? And so I did. And, um, or accused me of attempting to deliberately undermine the freedom of the press. Ha! <laughs> yeah. They said, it is evident to me that this request is an attempt to circumvent the statutory instrument, the wishes of the legislator, and thereby undermine the concept of freedom of the press, which the statutory instrument was designed to protect.
1: That's fantastic.
0: Basically what's happened is the Commissioner for Environmental Information has determined that orte is what's called a public administrative authority orte disagrees with this finding mm. now and then they have taken the ocei to the high court uh, to fight against this because as long as that stands then orte can be asked for information like this and they don't want this so i had to go to the ocai uh, they said well you're going to have to appeal it internally in RTE and I went well I can't do that cuz RTE say that um, you know the very mechanism that I'm trying to use does not apply to them so I had to go back to RTE and they're like yeah we're not we're not going to consider an appeal you, you get nothing and I go back to the OCA and go yeah they they they're just saying that you have no authority here at all so can we just like do this and they're like okay then in, the, in that scenario right. sure <laughs> but again, it's a it's a wonderful case of um, you know of norms, Michael.
1: Sorry, can you just tell me the o-
0: OECI? What's that stand for? OCEI. It's the Commissioner for Environmental Information.
1: I just love the fact that we have a Commissioner for Environmental Information because that's what that's another thing we really needed in this. We needed a Commissioner for Environmental Information.
0: Well, I mean, you know, in this instance, it might finally get me the um, the the records I want. I'm not sure, but I think the person who's responding to me is the same guy who turned me down before, and is immediately aware that the only reason I'm doing this is because I want that uh, I want that d- information.
1: Well, I don't know if we should be supporting this guy. If you're an enemy of the freedom of the press, I I don't know if you're the kind of people that we want to be associated with.
0: <laughs> As I was saying about norms, I love the idea of you know this commission coming out and saying that RTE comes under this um, uh, this act. Now, I mean RTE... I mean, it's owned by the state. Like the shares in Orgy are all held by the state. Yeah. So it would seem to be a public administrative authority, but the courts will decide that. But, you know, these guys come out and say, you wear this, and Orgy just goes, no, we're not. And uh, we're just going to bring a court case. And until that court case happens, uh, we're just going to refuse to engage with this entire process. Um, because, no.
1: Because, no. Basically, I think that is the answer, because no.
0: There's also this, where they're talking about undermine the concept of freedom of the press. The idea of RTE being able to hold, you know, private source material outside FOI, I think is perfectly acceptable, because otherwise it would be very difficult for them to function journalistically. The idea that they can keep every single piece of information that they can, however tenuously, link to editorial position strikes me as so broad that RTE is basically exempt from all FOIs at will.
1: Well, that's what struck me about that, that. The response was that if this is the case, that if the editorial exception would cover for training days and stuff like that, well, then you've expanded the, the level of cover to such an extent that it makes it effectively immune from any kind of FOI.
0: But uh, it's quite fun because RTE are saying that they... um. They're not part of the administration of the state, and they're not entities of political power, and uh, all of this sort of stuff. Mm. You're like, yep, you are. You're entirely owned by the state, though. And we know this because you're currently having a bit of a problem with your board.
1: A little bit, yeah, yeah, a little bit.
0: And uh, it turns out that all of the members of your board are appointed by the state, which would kind of, would indicate certain things about the state's, you know, ownership of you.
1: You're funded by the state, you're owned by the state, you're board is appointed by the state um, you're not an entity of political I don't know
0: Yeah, that's 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 an interesting one but so I mean in you know the past week GRIPT has been deemed to be undermining the freedom of the press going against the wishes of the legislature being of a, a dubious and untrustworthy origin uh, again Michael as Leo said we don't know their funders no we don't their subscribers if they have any I I would just say this, Michael, just on the political side of this. If I was Leo and I had recently had some trouble, shall we say, Michael, with uh, donations and there were people arguing that uh, advice had been provided to donors about how to get around donation restrictions, Mm -hmm. I would probably have not introduced the idea of funding into the conversation. And also because the other, I did a little kind of straw poll of this where I showed people I have a group of people who are passionately apolitical. You know, your standard Irish voter, they have no interest in politics. Mm. They don't want an interest in politics, but they vote. Yeah, yeah. And I showed them the video of Leo talking about GRIP on the Highland uh, Radio put out. Highland Radio by the way did fantastically out of that video. Most of the videos I saw for them like a good video would get, you know, 10 to 15,000. That video I think is up 350 or 400,000 views on social media. So right. I mean, great day for island radio um and i showed them that video and every one of them when they came to the point of uh, leo saying that one of the reasons it kind of sounded like he was saying we don't like Gript, and one of the reasons is we don't know how they're funded every single one of them made a comment which basically boiled down to you mean they're not funded by you
1: <laughs> really that's interesting that shows yeah. the level of And that actually shows a level of political awareness as well, sophistication, because they know what the story is. Do you not think that Leo just looks a bit grumpy these days? I was wondering, either he's having problems with his teeth, because a toothache will make you cry, because you you won't sleep again, or else is everything okay at home? Because he just looks a bit grumpy.
0: No, I think the thing with uh, Ben Scallon and um, him not getting any questions and a couple of the other people not getting any questions as well.
1: He's also, he was scald, he was very scaldy with the Independent. Oh, he
0: fucking went he for the Independent. Really what was that, a pathetic piece of political analysis? was the
1: worst piece, with the, the least possessive, or the most lacking in insight I'd ever seen. It was really, really, I thought, he, it, which is not going to make the people in the Indo particularly happy Um, he's, he, he, the guy from the radio had his hand up for the whole of the press conference and was ignored. Scallon gets in at the end and then he walks off and with Eamon Ryan looking sheepish and embarrassed and sort of, well, see you said lads and walking off behind them. If, 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 if Eamon Martin or Eamon Ryan rather hadn't looked quite so embarrassed, they might have been able to cover it up and said, Oh, he just, it was over and they'd left. But, but he was so obviously embarrassed; he was kind of comical.
0: Yeah, I mean, you get Martin does this kind of glance up and then glances down, yeah. and you know that's fine; you can get a play that way. But the best description I saw was that Ryan looks like someone who has been out at a nightclub and seen all of their friends thrown out for being too drunk, and is now trying to follow them while also making it clear that he doesn't know them.
1: <laughs> that's very good. Yeah, because we—at least I don't know about you, but I have certainly been that soldier. And uh, I, I can sympathize. That's very good, yeah.
0: Gary, I think everyone has been the soldier in Ireland. So this
1: Before we go, just we should at least advert very quickly to the poll of the parties, which has the Sinn Féin up three. So, remember, if Sinn Féin were in a, a death spiral and it was all over and everything was going horribly wrong and what could be done? Maybe... The apocalypse is not happening quite yet.
0: Yeah, so we have Sinn Fein up three in the Red Sea poll at twenty-eight percent. Finnegale twenty, Finnefail sixteen. That's minus one. Sixteen. The Social Democrats seven plus one. Very interested to see what the actual constituency breakdown on that is. Yes. Uh, Labour four, People for Our Profits Solidarity three, Green Party three minus one, AN2 three percent. Uh, others two. That's minus one, and Independents fourteen minus one. The only thing that legitimately surprised me there is the Social Democrats.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I looked at that and I thought that, and this is very unscientific. I will recognise. I will recognise. This is not unscientific. This is not scientific. That feels big.
0: Yeah, I I wonder because I mean these guys these guys got what uh, they were two point nine percent in the last election somewhere around that. Now I mean that's a great performance for them if it actually comes out. But I just I haven't seen much mention of them on the ground, so I wonder if they're just quietly working away and we haven't heard mention of it, or or what exactly that is. But I mean, if it comes, if it's accurately uh, represented, it's going to be a great election for the social if democrats. If they doubt.
1: have seven percent, then they can. If they have the, if they have the seven percent organized in the right constituencies, shall we say? And they have, the, they have the right candidates. I, I, somebody was saying to me recently about one uh, constituency and they said they, they, they thought they fancied this particular candidate for the social democrats to do well. And I absolutely poo-pooed them. I said, this is a stuff and a nonsense. But if they're hitting 7%, then they're, they're, going to be, they're going to be in a position to challenge for seats around the place in, in a few places. Not going to be two or three seats. Well, unless they're very unlucky and it's just spread absolutely evenly, absolutely everywhere, and, you know, they don't get any kick. But it just, I don't know, it feels big, 7%. I don't know. We shall see.
0: I mean, Michael, they, they could be in a position to replace the Green Party.
1: I'm, I'm sitting here internally checking how I feel about, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I suspect that this doesn't actually change anything in my life, that the Social Democrats will want to to beat me with the same, much the same kind of sticks that the Green Party will. But maybe, maybe they don't believe it quite as much. Because the, the Greens believe, they believe very strongly. Because it's been very obvious, and that's one of the interesting things about this government, this, this administration, that consists. there have been a number of policies where people have gone to the Greens when they're pushing a policy and said, yes, but this will cost this, and this will have that effect. In the tone of people of, you know, pointing out something really Big and obvious and, well, therefore we can't do it. And the response of the Greens has been, yeah, we know, we don't care, we're doing it anyway. And in the face of that kind of ideological commitment, people like Fianna Fáil and Finnegale are very weak because they don't really know how to deal with that kind of blitzkrieg.
0: There is, I, I mean, it, whatever else about the Greens, they have worked very hard to get parts of their agenda in. This referendum is largely driven by the Green Party. We've seen it in area after area that the Green Party very successfully picked certain parts of the program for government, influenced them, and are now ensuring that they'll be carried across. Now, I think where they've actually failed the most has been on the purely environmental side of things, because I think the problem you have there is there is a a point where ideology meets reality uh, in the form of the economy. And a lot of the stuff they'd like to do would send the economy into flames.
1: Um, I think the economy is smouldering. And maybe it's not quite in flames yet, but I think they've done enough. I mean, oh. they
0: have definitely hurt growth. There's no doubt that they have this government has put in things that have damaged growth and the housing market construction. Many, many sectors have been hurt by this government, but they tended to be it's been controllable. It's been largely contained, I think. Whereas if we just had the raw, unmitigated might of the Greens, this would be a fire. Like
1: I think what you're talking about the difference between like a heart attack and a slow cancer. I yes, it's been controlled, but it hasn't been stopped. And if you look at their approach to energy generation, to exploration, uh, to natural gas, to fracking, to LNG, to to the use of cars, to the the electricity grid, to and so on and so on. You know, maybe it's not you know big uppercuts to the jaw stuff, but it it's enough stuff to make uh, enough people miserable. And, and there's, I know there are a lot of people out there, particularly in rural Ireland, who hunger for the idea that next in the next election the Greens are going to get destroyed, like they were after uh, the the crash in whatever 2011. I don't think that's going to happen because I, if nothing else, I think. There are people who vote on the left, say the Labour Party, Social Democrat, uh, maybe Parts of Sinn Féin, that, who have looked at the Greens and are, are seeing in the Greens one of the most effective mechanisms for the implementation of left policy in the country. In many ways, more than others, that the Greens have been more successful in many ways of implementing left policy than any of the other parties. And I think that there are voters who have noticed that. And I think, and also that I think there's the aspirate, you know, the sort of the virtue, upper middle class urban voter, who is who can afford to pay an X amount. And you know what? The, the idea that in the years to come, when they go to Dublin airport, it won't be anything like as busy because all the other people that used to be able to go to Spain or to Portugal, or to Italy, on their holiday or to Greece, won't be able to go anymore. That doesn't necessarily displease them. Mm. Anyway, um, I think we should draw a veil over this. We should wish people a happy week, and we should be back on Sunday, all things being well.
0: All the best.